This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Oladanji and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris. Hey, I'm Rod. I'm from Peru. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I'm Liki. Hi, I'm Christina. Hi, I'm Olavanji. Hi, I'm Jen, and uh, and we're happy to be here today. And we're we're going to talk about something that I had never heard of before, and I heard about it for the very first time. Maybe you've heard of it. I think it's kind of wild. And if I can get the name right, it is solar geothermal engineering, which is not geothermal engineering. It is solar geothermal engineering, which sounds pretty innocuous until I listened to what the definition of it was. And Leaky, is there another name for it? I think it's, no, it's, there's no geothermal. It's, it's geoengineering. It's solar geoengineering. Oh, geoengineering. So yeah, there's no so thermal There's no involved. thermal okay. because um, geothermal is something else. Right. Is the heat. Yeah. From yeah. the ground. So, Okay, so this idea, in my understanding, when I listened to this uh, segment on our national Canadian radio station, um, is where you blow some particles up into the atmosphere that will block the rays of the sun in order to cool the earth temperature a little bit and hopefully uh, stop the uh, what's happening right now with the planet. And, and nobody's ever done this before. And the conversation that I heard was about it, it being a very slippery slope because we don't know what would happen if we start messing with what the sun is up to. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and it's not only just an idea, it's something that the UN Environmental Programme has called for more research into. So that's yes. something, it sounds like a viable solution. And it's a bit scary because, wow, we've got a solution to all our climate change problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the, the things that uh, one of the people said was they don't know what would happen because once you put the particles up there, you can't control them. Yeah. yeah and the once they're up there, you don't know what it's going to do to agriculture or or all of that. Yeah. Apparently, I mean, they, um, they haven't done a lot of research on that, but it's based on, uh, from my understanding, because uh, I, of course, listened to the section of the radio program you shared with us. And apparently, it's something that they have observed from... Um, was it called volcanoes eruptions yeah. yes yes um one thing that they have noticed is that when there's a there's a volcano eruption um the temperature below this the cloud of um you know of the smoke um it's lower than it what 
it should have been. And so based on that, based on this observation, the whole, you know, the whole concept of、um, solar engineering is based on this observation. This is my understanding, right? Yes. Yeah. They said they said the ash. Uh, that goes into the air after a significant volcanic eruption will will、uh, deflect the rays of the sun, and so everything is cooler down below. So it's this this idea that if they did a basically a volcanic eruption higher up into the atmosphere,、um, maybe they could cool things down. But there's a lot of Concern and trepidation around this idea too. <laughs> I'm just wondering, and I was trying to go back to the to this section to listen to it, but I didn't have time. So maybe you have a better understanding than than I have. Is that why once you've studied this process, you cannot go back, or maybe you can? I don't know. I think the idea was that they they are not sure that that you know it it would be like trying to catch everything after you've after you throw it up there. Right, there's no gravity. <laughs> It's gonna stay up there,、oh. and then how do you how do you corral it if it's doing things that you don't want it to do? It would be like you know, I don't know what to what analogy to、uh, to give to it, but it's like collecting all of the ash that comes out of a volcano. It goes everywhere,、mm. and so I think the concern is what if it. What if it does something we don't want it to do? What do you think of it, Olabenji? Yeah, you have some questions. Oh, I mean, it's 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 interesting because <laughs> like it's like well, we probably have a solution to climate change. This is something that we should definitely explore. Um, because if we can do that, we're we're going to be saving a lot of lives, saving you know. But it's like well. We're disrupting this the cycle of life, sort of, because I mean, it's like the heat is supposed to come down and you know evaporate back up in some way and come back as rain,、um, which you know we were taught in primary school.、Um, but if we don't let it all come here, it's not it's not going to disappear, is it? It's, it's going to go somewhere.、Um, so, like, how? I th- I think it's a great thing to explore, but off my head, it's like, well, we have to be able to predict as many possible outcomes and be able to plan for for them, and if it's possible to do some tests in a way that,、uh, you know,、mm. that doesn't kill us all. <laughs>、uh, but, but, <laughs> but but Christina has quite an interesting question. Here and I, and I think it's it's probably something to talk about as well. And she says, "Is climate change just about the temperature? Is it like well, if we say temperature go away, does it mean that every climate change problem also goes away?"、Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I I think I think there was um and and there's the other conversation around you know if we have a quick fix. And I liken it to you know diet pills or something. If we have a quick fix, then do we all stop being responsible and taking responsibility for our actions because they can spend ten? I think it was ten billion dollars to try this.、Um, it was a lot of money. And a who's going to pay for it? Is this going to be a, a global thing? 
or you know who who's going to do this and how many times are they gonna, and who's going to be yeah. in control <laughs> so there's a lot of questions and then what will mm. it do to agriculture and different parts of the world so anyway it's interesting that they're studying and looking at this i think it doesn't solve the climate change problem it just tackle it's just a patch to solve the temperature to reduce the temperature so it's it and climate change is so much more complex than mm. just the temperature yeah there's still right. cows <laughs> <laughs> and this is actually not the first time that um humans us uh, we are trying to manipulate weather mm -hmm. and that's a bit scary you know because it's uh i don't know it's uh i mean from people who um who believe in god it's you know, it's God's action to control the weather, but it, I mean, it's science, it's um, it's current, it's it's uh, it's physics, it's chemistry, but it's not just one simple action, yeah. I guess. So it's it's a little bit scary, I guess, to to have this ability to control weather. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the the other scary part is, uh, I don't know if. Our many attempts to manipulate nature has turned out very well in the history of humanity. <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. You don't? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> you name some example. I think you're right. You know, like, well, we've, we've, we've been down this road before. <laughs> um. I don't know. Brian, you want to, I mean, I heard you saying something. You want to go? Yeah. Hi, Brian. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. I wasn't here right at the top, but excited to be here for what is a pretty interesting topic. I, you know, Olivanji, I, I think your comment is correct. You no, know, it's, and I'm going to go to something Leaky just said that for me, when I look at this, like, it's the combination of, you know, some of the most complex things that we as humans to this day struggle to tr fully understand things like fluid dynamics, you know, very complex chemistry interactions where the chemistry action is happening, like at speeds and pressures that have great differentials, you know, like there's all these layers that happen in our atmosphere. Um, if for the moment where it seems like we're talking about the sort of, you know, the the solar, the sort of like the, the aerosol in the in the in the atmosphere, upper atmosphere approach to to this possible thing, and within that, like if we can't, if we're not sure how the experiment's going to go, and it's also an experiment. Like if we all think back to our chemistry classes and our physics classes, right? Like, what did the teacher always talk about first? Safety, right? And like you you put on your safety bib, you put on your safety goggles, you have your glove, whatever the the correct safety equipment to keep the experiment contained so that it's, you know, what, what, where it can, where the outcomes of this experiment will go and you're prepared for anything out, outside those boundaries. And I think in something like this, experimenting with something where we're actually, you know, again, if we're focusing on the aerosols at the moment, we're talking about, you know, stuff up in the atmosphere that we can't control where that goes, let alone, go give everyone safety, equipment, right? Like there's, you know, like if this experiment goes sideways, you know, we can't, there's not a, a method for us to sort of like 
address the issue or the outcome with everyone that it could hit because we can't tell where it could go anywhere and affect anyone. And, and that could be in simply in cooling one area of one continent and warming another, right? Like it could be that we find that these aerosols collect in the jet stream in a certain location. And that leads to an unintended impact that all of a sudden Europe is really cold or Europe is really hot and Northern Africa is really, is very cool and temperate, right? Like that mm -hmm. could be the outcome of this. And we don't know uh, because of how things collect in the jet stream and things. And those kind of calculations, we, I don't know that we, you know, can really understand. We could start, you know, Harvard was going to, was, was about to do a, a small scale example study over, I think it was Sweden or Norway. I think it was Sweden. And there was, you know, they, there was sort of some outcry and it didn't happen, but they wanted to understand this in small scale. Um, I'm not opposed to us expanding our knowledge, but I am worried about the, you know, and I think this comes to something that I think uh, you said, Jen, like if we start getting too much conversation around this, we start poking at this and it starts to become this crutch like, oh, well, that's what's going to save us. So we don't, I don't need to worry about this other thing I'm doing over here. It, it, it absolves us of that responsibility. And yet this thing that we're hanging our hat on could actually exacerbate the problem and make it worse. Um, so to me, it definitely feels like now I'm going to circle back to Alabanji's statement. Like, I don't know that I have a lot of examples <laughs> that I can think of in modern recorded history where we've attempted to mess around with a system as large as our atmospheric climate, uh, ecosystem and it's gone well. Like I, I can't think of many examples that fit that criteria. And so I'm concerned that this would fall into the other camp of it did not go well. Christina had a, yeah. a comment too. Yes. Yeah. I, I have been thinking about, it's not the, about warming and cooling down, but it's about uh, cloud seeding in California uh, by nature. Uh, what happened in California at, uh, the coastal bushes and forests were depleted and cut down and it changed how much water fell down in the valley. And so they found out when the forest stayed, the water from the ocean rose, went through the forest and then clouds gathered and then dropped the rain before it went down past to Nevada. So basically nature created cloud seeding. So there is more water in California than there is now that when there are no coastal forests. So that I just wanted to comment on that, that there are certain natural phenomena. There are cloud seeding and it's very complicated. It's not only the rise ra rising of the air and gathering but also there are some chemical and changes something i'm not sure about exactly but uh, there are some changes and things done by nature that the nature changes local weather and local yeah so that was me it, it, it's funny that you keep saying that um, nature knows how to cloud seed because is I would say it's the job of nature of mother nature to <laughs> <laughs> to transform clouds into rain by nature is the it's the it's the job of nature so 
Uh, it's made me smile. But I think that we we have the science of cloud seeding um, using chemicals. I think we know how to do it, except that I think I hope we don't use it too much, because <laughs> because um, because it creates um, negative effects, like you know anything that you you do when you mess up with nature, when you try to manipulate weather. But I think it's a technology we we know how to use. That's that's scary as well. I mean, scary uh, if we use it too often. I don't know. It, it... And nature can do it without the chemicals. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> we should we should do that. <laughs> I think we're dangerous creatures. I heard a um, I heard a uh, First Nation person talking about um, when we had the flooding here that was so bad in 2022, and people lost their farms and whole communities were underwater and and such um, from the atmospheric river. Um, there was quite some drama going around. A community came out and were pumping out by hand the pump station because if they didn't, the whole town would be gone. And um, that whole thing was a result of a hundred years ago, they decided to empty a lake and they emptied a lake and they put in this pump station and they diverted the water to somewhere else so that they could farm the land that the lake, the bottom at the bottom of the lake, and this First Nation person was just saying, you know, <laughs> none of this would have happened if that thing hadn't have happened because we had the technology a hundred years ago to do it, and uh, so yeah, we kind of mess things up, mess with Mother Nature, and then somebody suffers afterwards, you know. So it's yeah, it's an interesting. It's the tension, right? We know how to do it. Should we do it? Is it important? Is it necessary? Is it the last ditch effort? Like, where where are we at with that? So, Jen, it's interesting that you say that. And, and I, I guess one question I might come in and, yeah. and almost ask us about the language we're using, uh, which is, you know, does Mother Nature have an intention? Is it nature's job to do something, right? Like that, that denotes a certain sense of like a responsibility and an ability to choose to live up to that responsibility of doing that job or not. And, and I don't, you know, Mike, I guess my question is, is that how things work or is, you know, there, I do, I guess I want to go back to, are there things where we are creating this persona within nature of like, Nature knows how to cloud seed without chemicals. So that's how we should do it. The, nature does it with dust particles. Like it, that's how it happens naturally. And our chemicals are, you know, like our version of that, like our sort of manufactured version of that. But is there, maybe a, to ask another question, like is there, are there examples where when we let nature do what it does, it, it isn't advantageous and maybe the question is like, who is it advantageous for? Like, it isn't advantageous for us if we let nature follow this course. Right. And maybe maybe us being the center of that question is itself part of the problem. <laughs> there. <laughs> there. There, yes. Um, yeah, and I guess it depends on the worldview and, 
and you know from a first nation perspective um indigenous perspective there's great reverence and respect for nature and for what the power of nature and what nature can do um which is maybe different from the perspective of oh look at all the things we can control <laughs> um because we're, we're smart and we know how and and i think that you know the ravaging forest fires that we've seen and all these kinds of things um like like it's it's hard it depends on on which perspective you come from and if nature is a living breathing thing that was perfectly fine without us and then we came in as, as, you know, as we became more technologically advanced and started messing things up. That's, that's a perspective, right? One of the focus of innovation over the years that we've tried to do it, which has led to like growth and development and all the amazing things that we see today, the mobile phone, the computer, the amazing technology that we've had. It's like we try to solve a problem, but we probably are not paying as much attention to what that solution might cost, you know, aside the mental, you know, energy that we put into it and, you know, some of all the other stuff. Um, it's like, okay, we want to take, I mean, and, and an easy example is, well, let's go to space and yeah, we can now go to space. Well, let's take as many people as possible with us. Well, that's also possible because, you know, they're, they're working on that right now. But it's like, well, you're going with a lot of fuel. You're going with a lot of all this stuff and you're beginning to emit carbon in places that we don't even know if we can do that yet. Um, we've done enough around here. And now they're going to like the upper layers of, you know, the stratosphere and all the spheres, you know, it's like, well... Well, we probably solved the problem of moving people from here to Mars, but we don't know what's going to happen if we do that at a commercial scale. But but it's like we're more worried about how we can get more people there than how that might affect, you know, the the natural cause of things. And so it's like, well, maybe maybe we're you know we're moving fast, but we're probably just moving too fast. We probably should be spending more time on some of all the stuff that that we try to that we try to invent um, or you know innovate on or make better progress on. And you know, it's like it's cool, but well, let's let's be sure that it's actually cool, you know, and and we're not just <laughs> and we're not just setting ourselves up for for some disaster later on. I was thinking about the First Nation or the Indigenous perspective um, that treats the environment and nature as, uh, as a living, breathing thing. And there's a different approach to that, that everything is, is in balance, that you take what you need and use it all you honor, you respect, you put it back. It's more of a symbiotic relationship, I think, in in many ways. And and yes, while we've had incredible advances and things we really need to advance in, including 
medicine and innovations to help uh, feed people. And, you know, there's lots and lots of different things that humans are amazing at inventing. It's, um, there are different perspectives on how to look after uh, nature, right? Are we, are we truly in charge and dominating it? <laughs> or are we living with respect in it? And, and those are two mm. very different approaches um, to, to the planet we live on. Yeah. And, and if, I could, if I can say something in addition to that, which is, which is what, you know, dwelling on what you just said, it's like, okay, for example, with agriculture, you know, I also think that the people that make a profit off some of these things are really quick to make that happen than, you know, care about nature and greenwashing is proof of that. And all the other stuff in the ill like it's like people that grow food you know for example and it's like put a lot of chemicals into the ground and then you know the plant grows very fast way faster than it probably should but then the food itself is not healthy as it should be because it's like i mean i heard a friend say don't buy food from there i'm like why and he says it's as good as swallowing a pill i'm like <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and what he's saying is basically there's so much chemicals, you know, that's involved in getting that fruit or food to grow. It's not healthy to eat. I mean, even though it seems to have grown from the ground. And it's like the guys that are in charge of that don't care. They just want to grow as much as possible in the shortest possible time and get that into the market. So it's like, well, maybe another thing to think about is like, you know, we profiting from some of these things that put nature in some imbalances is um, it's another thing to think about before we go ahead and say, yeah, we have a new solution. <laughs> there's this, um, and I, I won't cite it well, but there's this um, perspective. It's like a, a decision-making lens that you look at that that I believe comes from a tribe within the First Nations, I don't recall where, so I, I can't cite the source here. I've heard it referred to as, as the seven generation lens. Like, as you look at each decision you make and each thing you choose to do, look at were that decision not to be done once, but to continue to be done in the pattern and pace that you're choosing to do it, what would the implications be seven generations forward? What would be the implication if you know, so, you know, I was walking down the street in New mm. York City yesterday and I was sort of surprised mm. at how much litter was around at the moment. And I was, you know, like, and then there, someone was coming through and sweeping it up and this was early in the morning. Mm. And then I was leaving late in the day to go get on the train and go home. And there was a whole bunch of litter in the same spot, mm. you know, and next morning someone will come sweep it up, but then it goes somewhere, right? It, we're just displacing the impact. And I'm using wow. litter as a very simple example here. But whoever's walking, and this is admittedly 42nd Street in Midtown Manhattan, but so there's a lot of people walking, but they're littering enough that it's even daily being swept, it's reaccumulating. And if you imagined a week of that without it getting cleaned up and put somewhere else, let alone a month or a year or a decade or one generation, 
or two or three or four or five or six generations, I mean, you, it, it would become mm. impassable, right? Within, within a year, it's impassable. Um, it's only made possible by the scooping it up and putting it mm. somewhere else. But that somewhere else, there is a cost there that just gets not seen. So anyway, I, Olabanji, some of what you were saying makes me think about that. The decision making through a lens that has a longer longevity than the present. That is that is such a beautiful way to see it. Such a beautiful way to see it. It makes me want to like actually just print that on and frame that and just put it on my wall just so I'm reminded every time that like this is some lens through which you should, you know, look before making decisions. Definitely don't put my name under it because I am not the source of it. <laughs> Doesn't need Brian under it. <laughs> Brian <laughs> said. <laughs> Brian said. <laughs> Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, I will, I will say there's, you know, like decisions I'm going through and it's, I, I'm, I, I've been trying to, in fact, I've been working with one of our guests for a while and was really enjoying working with him on some things. And it was really anchoring this idea, this sustainability concept in my mind. And it started leading to mm. like stress and anxiety and just even the things that I think are like low impact you know, uh, relative to the average impact, it was, you know, creating stress and anxiety to, because when you really look at most things in your life through that lens, there's not many that there's not many for any of us that have that truly are sustainable one generation or seven generations out. And and it becomes a really tough self-reflective lens to, to use on yourself. It creates a lot of thoughts. And now to, Oh, I, I was going to say that I think this is very key because, um, and I hope that a lot of people are this conscious, you know, because to to actually save the planet, we can't have a few people thinking like this. And I think that's why conversations like this are very, very important. So like ideas like this need to spread. Um, it's like an illustration in the Carbon Almanac in in a page um and i have it here but it says it says that we're all in a giant bus heading towards a brick wall and everyone's arguing for a place to say it's like okay (laughs) (laughs) it's a good cartoon um you know it's more like well we're all prioritizing the wrong thing if we're all heading towards the same doom and I'm glad we're doing this because this makes conversations like this, you know, makes ideas like this to spread because um, we really, really do need it to spread um, and to influence as many decisions that have been made as possible. So on that cheery topic, I think we need to. <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah, it it's good. And I was uh, when I was listening to this thing on the radio, I thought, OK, that's interesting. Um. Whether I'm for or against that, what can I do about that? Well, you know, it's a piece of news that is not useful to me, but you, Ola Benji, uh, very nicely um, highlighted the fact that we it's help us have better conversations. So, yeah, so it was not another junk piece of news. <laughs> so is it fair to say that? Sounds good, but not so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I 
think it's I'll say this it is sounding, but it's it's yet to sound good. <laughs> you know, more like, uh yeah, but like we need to answer a lot more questions before we talk about the budget for it. Like, well, what's the budget doing? You know, how many questions will the budget be able to answer if the solutions being deployed? Um and all that. I mean, I know there are so many intelligent people working on it, so I mean they probably are thinking about it, but and I hope they are. But <laughs> yeah, and it's not—it's not so much a, a question of budget because it's—it um, costs a lot of money. But you know, it's a—it's a sort of money that can be found. They are talking about ten billion dollars for that. I mean, it's—it's it's not so much money to solve all this, this you know, this problem. So. Yeah, it, it, it was really a solution. Yeah. The money can be found. You, you know, it's interesting. When I was researching it, there was a couple different layers to it. You know, one layer was the sort of pushback against it even being explored in the in the current modern conversation because of this sort of it accidentally becoming this hope that everyone hangs their hat on and absolves them of their own responsibility in their, in their daily behaviors. Like that was one re- pushback reason against it. One that I found that was compelling and interesting that was for it, for geoengineering, was that there are some parts of climate change where as the impact of climate change has an impact, it actually is a self-replicating and self-accelerating uh, cycle where the creation of the Dust Bowl actually creates more Dust Bowl, right? Like the, the thing becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. And if geoengineering can be used to shave off sort of the peak of this, like we're, we're, we're going in one, or maybe if we want to use the classical down, we're going down in a bad direction. And like, we're going to, we're going to try and pull this plane back around, but hopefully before the bus crashes into the wall, we're going to, we're going to pull it around, but maybe this just helps shave some of that peak off mm. a little bit, even though it does have some implications. Right. And, whether those are some, you know, and this is, this becomes a real mm. ethics dilemma, mm-hmm. right? Of, okay, well, let's hypothetically say there are health implications to 1% of the world's population if we use aerosols and 1% of the world's population has significant health impact, mm. but it means we go from, you know, we, we were tracking to hit two and a half degrees Celsius and we actually skate by and we, we curl the bus around at only two degrees. And that extra half a degree over the course of a decade might mean 5% of the world's population is saved. Do you still do the action that puts at risk 1%? Yeah. If you believe that the math bears out that you'll save 5%? You know, these become really big ethics questions that I don't... Mm. Jen, you I feel like the, the you're the best suited to answer these. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and, and I actually do have a follow-up question, right? Because it's more like hmm, if this is a solution, right? Like and the budget for this is 10 billion dollars. Well, my other question is what else can 10 billion dollars do to curb the problem that we have now? And can we do that instead? Um, you know, I mean, to put that in perspective, you know, we've got, um, I was just reading an article, I might actually still have it up here about, let me see if I do, 
um, about the U.S. clean energy transition and uh, Mr. Jigar Shah, who is sort of heading up, and he's he's in charge of the U.S. Mm-hmm. deploying four hundred billion dollars, so forty times as much money is being deployed in the U.S. over a, only a mm-hmm. few years towards you know a variety of programs, things like solar incentives and other clean energy incentives, you know, many different kinds of programs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's four hundred billion dollars. Wow! You know, if you went to him and his and his U.S. based department, and you said, "Here's four instead of four hundred, you now have four hundred and ten. I don't know that that would Damn. tip. I don't know that that, that extra ten billion dollars. Well, to us, it sounds like a lot. I don't know that it would sway things significantly differently in the impact of his programs to go from four hundred to four ten. Yeah, that's that's on perspective. Mm. yeah interesting mm. conversation yeah <laughs> pandora's box you call it that <laughs> <laughs> it is i mean i you know I, I really think some of it comes down to I, I liken it to that experiment that if you you're not sure what could happen but you know that some of what could happen has fairly negative consequences for some people but it could yield very positive outcomes for other people, but you don't know which is which. Are we in a place to pull the trigger, to like make that decision, take that action? Like, how do you assess that decision from an ethics perspective? And yet, maybe we can ask the same question. Every day that we enjoy some convenience, right? Let's say that convenience is getting in an airplane and flying to see a friend just for a weekend away on a sunny beach because it's cold and blustery and wintry here in the Northeast or many other places. There's a, there's a current, you're benefiting someone, maybe you and that friend, but at the expense of an impact to someone else, right? Somewhere the impact of that flight, it's landings. The the impact is landing somewhere um, and you don't know where but it has a negative impact. And so every day we make these decisions, we just, I think, aren't confronted with them as a question in the same way that maybe something as big as this geoengineering topic becomes an inherent binary question. And and another thought is that Mm. it's an all or nothing solution in that there may be people who don't agree with it, but they won't have a choice <laughs> if we're talking about something that goes up mm. into the atmosphere that affects the entire planet and could continue to affect it for years because the particles or the aerosols won't go anywhere. They'll be, they'll be up there somewhere. Mm. Um, yeah. It's, it's a big, big thing. <laughs> big question. Hey? It's huge. If it works, um, whoever owns the technology would say would claim that I oh, I own the world because I solved the world's biggest problem. So the world is mine. So that creates another yeah. major yeah. problem again. So. Interesting. Hmm. Things that make you say, hmm. hmm. <laughs> yeah, I I think this is definitely a topic to track progress on and follow up, you know, seriously with to. Um, to keep our listeners abreast of what's happening. And so 
who knows someone in position might be listening as well and um yeah this definitely is something to 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 keep talking about until we see through whatever that means But I think we opened the Pandora box a long time ago when we first made a decision to drill holes to get oil. You know, when you, you said, oh, Pandora box, you know, the image that came to my mind was the, the scene of, I don't know if you've seen it, um, this film with Daniel Delewis, I think, oh. called There Will Be Blood. Yes. Um, great movie. It's, that's, that's a great wow. movie. And um, so it's the story of the, I think the the first um, one of the first um, uh, what do you call it uh, you know people that went and find and look for oil and there was one of the first company I don't know if it's based on the true story but it was really really compelling because it's um yeah. I, it was out maybe like ten or fifteen years ago I didn't get the whole sense of there will be blood because of you know it uh, with the oil it comes a lot of money and uh and so he uh he's lost I think his family and, and you know he he ended up alone lonely but then now I get the full essence of the title there will be blood because it's you know by drilling this hole uh it's not oil the black thing that came out but really mm. blood and uh, we're paying the consequences of that okay we need to end yeah. this on a high note Sorry. <laughs> that's what i kept trying <laughs> i was trying <laughs> well here's, here's the high note that i will say let's see here i've got two directions i could take it one as a high note I'm going to go to the $400 billion that we're spending here in the U.S. And I work in a business for my day job where we do real estate transactions and we transact in the energy space. And I have a number of clients who are building large solar fields and wind farms and these kind of things. And with some of these incentives fueled by, in this case, the example $400 billion uh, for our local economy, the pace and the speed of these projects and the, the volume of them really is picking up and it's becoming a much bigger, faster growing part of, at least here in the U.S. with these incentives and things like, it's really an interesting speeding up kind of process. And to me, that's exciting to get to work with that on a daily basis and sort of see, you know, early this morning, I was working on a 4,000 acre wind farm project, you know, and where we're dealing with these, you know, like really exciting kind of things where I'm like, oh, this is, this is going to make a difference. And that's one positive note is I, I do think that there are dollars that are going and are creating pattern change that do hopefully move us towards a sustainability. Because if you put that seven generation lens on some of those things, it's like, yeah, like I can see that being good and useful for, mm. for those seven generations and forward. Um, and the other one I would say is while I was researching this geoengineering, I was surprised at the many other versions of geoengineering that are actually available to some of us, mm. things like planting a tree, right? Like that's, you know, there's these different other kinds that we don't necessarily think of in this big global movable mm. climb, you know, airstream kind of way, but like you just think about them because they're on the ground differently, but Oh wait, yeah, me planting a tree, right? We have Arbor Day coming up in a bit. Like that is helping geoengineer and move the planet towards a direction in a good way. So 
maybe we can all think about the the kind of geoengineering that is an experiment that we can do within constraints and won't hurt other people and will likely lead to good things. Plant a tree, grow some food. Yes. I love that. <laughs> yeah, there's our good There's our good There's our good <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> this was lovely, friends. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Good to see you all. Good to see you too. Bye bye. Good to see you. Bye. Thanks. I enjoyed it. <laughs> You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of The Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.